Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and by David Priest, coach and columnist. This week's guest is Eric Ten Hag, who gives us a fascinating insight into his influences and his philosophy. Manchester United could still win a treble in his first season. The immediate challenge is a quarter-final tie against Europa League specialists, Sevilla. So, Johnny, how far can he take them? He's already taken them further this season than, than I thought it would be possible, than Ralph Ranić, who said they needed six years to, to get to this point, thought was possible. And on the basis of what we've seen so far, then then he can take them all the way. And by all the way, I mean the objective for United is to, is to win the title. Now, they're up against the most formidable powerhouse we've probably ever seen, let's face it, Manchester City in, 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 in the English top flight. So to overhaul them will take more than this season, possibly more than next season. And of course, there's other forces, Arsenal and, and, and coming Newcastle and Liverpool come back. So he's, he's got an incredibly difficult job. But what I'd say is for the first time in a decade, let's say United have got something in place that, that looks like a route back to the top. And, and I say that just because this season, some of the results have been spectacular. Some of them have been spectacularly bad but they've been overall better than we could have possibly imagined, but have been done not just by buying players, which I think the club have looked at as being their, their kind of you know, magic bullet in the past. He's done it by coaching, and that's what makes me think he can get back. You know, he's developed Marcus Rashford to a huge degree. He's got a system now of playing that makes United hard to beat, but also potent in attack. He's understands players really well. I love his kind of quick take on Fred and McTominay and, and, and realisation that they're not defensive midfielders. These guys are both attacking midfielders to in different ways. You know, he he assessed that very quickly. It took other coaches years and, 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 and they still thought they were defensive midfielders. I look at him putting Bruno Fernandes in the Pirlo role in the last couple of games and that looking like a really smart move that, that could bode well for the future for United. And he's only still got, I think, half a top-class team and he's achieved as much as he's done so far. So for all those reasons, I think he is the man that can develop United over the course. But the brackets is, look what he's up against. Yeah, that's for sure. Dave, you know, one trophy in the bank already. How do you expect the season to pan out? Do you expect another trophy? Well, Europa League's probably the best chance of them doing that. And I think if you look at the <clears throat> the, the draw that they, they could have in the next two rounds, then, yeah, it's it's not beyond them. I think John's 100% right when it says at the core of it, everything's about coaching, the success that they are having. They've got, they've got structure. They've He's given them um, a, a real stability all the way through the club. Whereas, you know, against the backdrop of what's happening above him, you know, the, the potential takeover and now with... Um, you know the setbacks early in the season with the heavy defeats and and now with the injuries to to Luke Shaw, you know that core of what he's doing out in the training pitch is what's going to see them through to the end of the season and a Champions League finish and possibly Europa League on top of what they've already got looks like a good season to me. Yes, yeah, certainly does. Now 
when you visit United's training ground, the murals feature legends from successive generations. The gleaming trophies on the first floor landing give you an insight into the standards by which United managers are judged. Eric Ten Hag, you sense, gets it. Welcome, Eric, and, and thanks, first of all, for your time. Much appreciated. There's a great chemistry about European nights at Old Trafford. Now, I know managers like to live in the moment, but what would winning a trophy, a European trophy, given the traditions of United, and that would mean you following in the footsteps of you know, Sir Matt Busby, Sir Alex Ferguson, Jose Mourinho, what would that mean to you? Uh, the vibe in Old Trafford is magnificent, and especially as you mentioned on night games, especially Europe games, yeah, you feel the spirit, the energy in the stands from Old Trafford, and it's a great experience. And yeah, about winning the trophy, we can't think about that in this moment because we are first in the quarterfinal. So don't dream about that. We have to focus on on the next game, and that game is Seville. And that's a severe opponent, strong opponent. Uh, they won the cup six times, and that is the record in Europe. So we have big respect for the opponent, so we focus on that. Mm. The severe tie will mean that you've now played 50 matches this season. It's a unique season in many ways. How big a challenge has it been in terms of squad management over that time? Ah, it is. And first of all, you need a good base, a good physical base. I think we work hard for that with the squad, uh, with our performance medical staff, with our coaching staff, uh, to get everyone in the right physical levels. That's the most important base. And from there on, yeah, you have to manage the games coming up and also go into the individuals. And not every player is capable to play all the games, but there are players who can do it, uh, who are in a certain age, they have the experience, but also they have a certain physical profile, you can do it. And with others, yeah, you have to manage it and to hold them sometimes back. Not everyone understands then why you keep players out, but yeah, that is in their interest and finally in the interest of the team. But in the end of the day, as a manager, you have to win the games. And it's all about that, so you have to pick the right team. Mm. You know, as a case in point, Marcus Rashford is going to be out for a few games. Managers and coaches have to have a contingency plan in their head, don't they? Do you plan ahead for those type of injuries that if something happens to a key player like a Bruno or a Marcus that you know what you're going to do? Yeah, you, you have a squad. Eh? You form that squad in the start of the season, a little bit you can repair it in the winter. But yeah, a squad always needs a depth that you can replace players in the moment they drop out. But some players are so important for the game of a team, then it's difficult to replace them. But still you have to do it. But it will also change your game. And you have to be aware of that. Because a lot of our game is now set up for Marcus Rashford. So we have to adjust a little bit. But still we have to do it. And we have players who are capable to maybe a little bit different way but they can replace him and still we have a good team and still we have scoring uh, capabilities in the squad. Mm. One of the great things about European competition is that there's always a contrast in styles or culture. You know, when I spoke to Pep, he talked about how he almost absorbed different cultures uh, as he went along in his career, obviously working you know, from the Catalan roots, from Spain into Bundesliga and over here in England. How much did you learn from your development journey? You know, that the developmental role that you have with Bayern, sandwiched between two Eredivisie jobs. How do you pick up experience and what were the lessons, for instance, that you got from working with Pep or under Pep in Bayern? Yeah, a lot. You, you learn always a lot from your opponents uh, who, who you face and when you go and work in a different country, yeah, you uh, get confronted with different styles, different systems, styles and systems. And so my experience in Germany was great. 
from many uh, aspects. I was first, I was, I was manager, first time in my life of the highest league. And then I made the decision to go to work with the under 23 team on the fourth level in Germany. But it is a decision, after all, I never regret because, yeah, I met Pep Guardiola, I met Matthias Sommer. I played in a different country, so with different styles, and it was so different in respect of the Netherlands at that time. So I had so many experience and I, I learned so much there. It makes me a better manager, makes me a better, better coach. So I'm really grateful and I'm so happy after all that I made that decision. Mm. One of the great things about the Premier League is that there are people coming from different backgrounds, coaching backgrounds. So Mikel Arteta and Unai Emery have both spoken to me about the Basque culture that produced them. What about the Dutch culture that produced you and informed your journey as a coach? We look at these great philosophers, don't we? The Cruyffs and Van Hals. How much of an influence did they have on you? Yeah, I think a lot, but I think it's the same. I know also something about that Northern Spain, the Basque yeah. uh, culture. I have taken notice of it about so the skills, how important it's also to bring the emotion in the game, things like that. So the balance between emotion and ratio in the game. And yeah, I have some influences. Uh, it was the Dutch culture. It was about, yeah, uh, Rinus Michels, Johan Cruyff, about adventure and proactive. Uh, I think the 1974 team of, of the Netherlands was that time far ahead. If you see the clips, the views from that time, you think uh, it's a team who can play nowadays. And I think uh, there was, first of all, the capabilities of the players, but the team, the way they played, the way they pressed, the way they played dynamic out, uh, it is great to see. And of course, it had a big influence on me in my development as a manager. Mm. One of the great club teams from that sort of late 70s area was the SC20 team. In England, people would know of Franz Tyson, Arnold Muren coming over to Ipswich. The coach of that team, Case Rivers, is now 96, still going strong by all accounts. Is he a bit of a mentor of yours? Yes, I, I had the advantage to have him as my coach when I was a player from the under 23 and uh, he was a big name in the Dutch football and it was first of all as a player uh, he played in France in his career uh, and football was not that worldwide seen because there were not uh, all the games were not recorded but he was a fantastic player uh, he played for Saint-Étienne and he was one of the best players in the France and you still could see when we were training with him but his few on the games and the influence he took uh, that was so brilliant and uh, he learned us a lot and you mentioned Franz Tyson and Arnold Muren but in Twente played Europe League finals and they beat big teams all across Europe and it was a club in the region so it was a quite small club but the team competed with Ajax and Ajax Amsterdam in that time was the best of the world and they were really close so it had, must be a really good team and the big quality of the team was keeping the ball and that was Kees Rijvers. They he set up formations and they were capable of keeping the ball. I know there is a format in the BBC when that team keeps the ball against Ipswich Town I think about two or three minutes without that any player of Ipswich Town mm. catch the ball and Kees Rijvers was the one who molded that team with his philosophy and uh, one thing more I always have in my mind, Case Rivers could change games with one exchange inside his start 11. So to give someone else, some player in the team, a different position and games were changing. So yeah, I really admire him. And coincidentally, I had him on the phone after they came from Everton in Old Trafford <laughs> uh, because I had a friend who visited me and he said, okay, we go and have a call with Kees Rijver. So I shortly I spoke with him and yeah, it's great when you're 96, still living together with his wife, 95, and that's right. great and he's still following a little bit of football. Yeah, so as a final point, how long did it take you to produce the Ajax team that, that obviously enthralled everyone in 2019? And relate that please to the way that 
the group here is evolving at Manchester United. How long does it take, do you think, to produce a really authentic Eric Ten Hag team? Uh, it's not my aim to <laughs> move an Eric Ten Hag team. It's about that we form a great Manchester United team. Yeah, and in Ajax, I, uh, to look back, I'm proud, but it's history. And I think we, we built a legacy because that team had so much, I would say, adventure. And we're so great players in with Onana and with the Licht and Frankie de Jong and Hakim Ziyech and Dusan Tadic. And I think it will always stay in a lot of heads, especially, of course, in the Netherlands, but maybe also across Europe, because no one expected that we could come that far. And in a small country, in these times, compete with clubs from big countries. So yeah, we, we did a great job. Unfortunately, the team drops away because players left and we didn't have the time to bring new players in and to keep the best players. And I think that is the, the advantage when you're working in a big league like Premier League, hopefully, and big teams now, you can keep your best players and develop maybe young players out of academy to make the right transfers to strengthen the team and so you can build a team for the future. So that is of course where we are aiming for in this moment in Manchester United. So you're on the right lines? We doing everything we can and we're giving 100% commitment and we're giving 100% energy to build a great team. Well, once again, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. A real sense of stability there, Johnny. There's a manager who's ready to acknowledge the past through his coaching influences, but he obviously has a clear vision of the future, doesn't he? He does. He's, he's, he does what the top managers have to do, which is think in, in almost three tracks, really. You know, the past, the heritage, the here and now, what do I need, and, and also an eye on, on development. I love the part of the interview where he's talking about Keith Rivers, his sort of 96-year-old mentor. I didn't know much about Rivers and, and that prompted a, a real sort of Google troll this morning, which uh, which is <laughs> re re rewarding, you know. I mean, like, wow, what what a, what a figure he appears to have been. And, you know, on top of what he did at FC20, he was Dutch manager, gave Ronald Koeman and Ruud Hullet their, 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 and Van Basten their debuts, still going. And it's, it's entirely in keeping with Ten Hag that his ultimate hero is a maybe a sort of slightly niche guy, but somebody from his hometown as well, from FC20, because one thing that comes through about Ten Hag is how embedded he is. And as a person, he's got solid values. And I think they come from his upbringing, the club he loved, the club he played for. And, and I think that anchors him and grounds him in everything. And I love the thing he said at the end as well, Mike, when he said, it's not my aim to mould an Eric Ten Hag team. And... What is it that we always think about Dutch coaches? You know, we think, oh, they're brilliant, but they're egotists. I think absence of ego in Ten Hag is one of the things that, that, that makes him such a good coach. One of the things that allowed him to get rid of Cristiano Ronaldo, for example, because that was never seen as an ego war and it could have been seen as an ego war. It was seen as a, a, a plausible decision that everyone accepted because I think they can see this fairness about Ten Hag. It's not coming from a pettiness or a personal thing. It's always coming from standards and fairness. And all those things make him, I guess the human being's an impressive one and, and, and that allied to his football ideas is what gives him the, the, the sort of ballast as a coach. Mm. I was really struck by his, his sense of purpose and the air of authority that he radiated. Dave, you know, players at United now know where they stand and what's expected of them. With your experiences of dressing rooms, maybe transitional dressing rooms, is that going to be the biggest factor in the turnaround, that buy-in from the, from the group? Yeah, 100%. And I think what they've got now is a bit of a happy medium, whereas he's put boundaries in place and that's what players not only need, they want that, but they don't want boundaries that are going to be restrictive to them. And under probably the last two managers, you probably think that... You know, look at someone like uh, Mourinho, who's could be restrictive in the way that he's everything structured in around his not just the, on the pitch but off the pitch as well. 
And then they've probably just had a little bit too much freedom under Oli Gunnar as well. And so, like like I said, they've got that happy balance now. And I think that as long as he's, he's given them that structure on and off the field and those boundaries, but you've got to also give players the feeling of a, a freedom that they can they can express themselves within that. And like I said, it, a lot of stuff in in football is about balance on and off the pitch. And he seems to have have got that. And it's not difficult. It's not easy for somebody like him coming to a big club like United and having to deal with all the the personalities and every decision he makes, especially early on. It's a little bit of a gamble how it's going to be taken, especially if he's trying to exert his authority. But I think we always associate Dutch authority with like a superiority or an arrogance when all he's doing is showing strength and and, and winning that 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 battle with Cristiano. It's given him a lot of a lot more strength in the dressing room as well. Mm. He also acknowledged Johnny that the team has been set up for Marcus Rashford. Now he's out. I think the phrase was a few games. They're entering a key phase of the season without him. How do they cope and will they cope? Yeah, I found that an interesting point to the interview as well, Mike, because it's unusual for coaches to be honest in that way about their teams. They would usually see that as, I don't know, giving away a a sense of weakness or whatever. And, and, And another part of Ten Hag's confidence, I suppose, is... Just be honest, isn't he? Yes, the team's been set up. Absolutely, you know, yeah. and 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 that's what's appreciated. I do fear for them without Rashford because he's been two things. He's been the clearly he's been the the main goal scorer, but he's also been their point of penetration. You know, his off the ball running is incredible, and his pace. He's the player they look for when they've got the ball to penetrate and stretch the opposition. So. It's like they, they need this source of goals, but they also need a different way to attack without him. If Martial's fit, that is a source of goals. But you know, I could I could the number of times somebody's begun a sentence with if Martial's fit over the last six <laughs> years must be in the millions. But that would help if if he stayed fit. I'm really interested in the redeployment of Bruno. He was in 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 the sort of deeper role, penetrating the with the passes he can make. That might give them something a bit extra, but they'll still need players to run on to them. I guess what I'm giving you is a slightly long-winded way of saying I think they'll struggle without Rashford. But I think Ten Hag's the if you know has got the coaching tools to have a good go at making up for it. Mm. The actual collection of those coaching tools intrigued me, Dave. He underlined the importance of his spell with Bayern's development team uh, and also the lessons that he learned from Pep Guardiola and and Matthias Sammer. You've been around as a coach. You've worked in Sweden and you're now working in the Caribbean as well. Is there a lesson there for emerging English coaches to actually go into a different culture and broaden their experience? Yeah, definitely. And I think there's two sides to it from a sort of a human perspective. Just learn about different mentalities, different cultures, how players are thinking when they're coming into your side. And and that gives you that sort of the understanding of them as a person as well as a player. So it's not just about whether they're performing or not on the pitch, on the training pitch. You know, you can see why they're doing things from another perspective. As a coach... The best coaches know that they don't know everything. And for him going into Bayern Munich, he will know that he, he's going there to learn. And even now, knowing coaches who are Manchester, working in around Manchester City, how much they appreciate just being able to watch and, and learn from someone like Pep Guardiola. He'll have been like that as well. And he, he knows that he can only become a better coach by being around people like that. Yeah, it, He's obviously um, he's obviously learned a hell of a lot, and, and you know, listen, he, he mightn't play exactly the same way, and he mightn't be using the same tools that Pep Guardiola is using, but certainly there'll, there'll be lots of things that he can add to his own uh, his own armory. Mm. Yeah, as you said earlier, Johnny, you know, the the key will be the type of opposition they're going to face. Manchester City. Now we've said this before, but surely. You know, this is their time to win the Champions League. Um, I thought that win over Bayern uh, was the most complete performance by an English team I could remember for years. I'd agree, Mike. I, 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 it was one of the most sensational games I've seen in years, actually, in terms of the the levels of individual players just 
you know the touch the bravery on both sides the the, the decision making and for 45 minutes it was quite even but it was like watching two absolutely top class boxers with the early rounds being so so tight but then one of them just proving that bit better than the other and and and, and knocking them out in the end because city went up a level and and Bayern couldn't live with them in the end and there wasn't a bad performance and there were many, many brilliant performances. You know, you could start with Haaland, you could mention De Bruyne, you could, the, the guys at the back were, were sensational. The two people I was drawn to actually were Gundogan and Bernardo Silva. The more I watch them, the more I think in terms of being pure footballers, they might actually be the two best players in the country and two of the most unsung, but they, those guys can do everything. They embody Manchester City. They can do every function with the ball or off the ball, and they get themselves in the right spaces and make the right decisions all the time. And they were at their best in that game. Mm. I think it's a, a signal of the quality of the game that you could look at it and come to other conclusions. Like, for, So, for instance, from a personal point of view, Johnny, you know, I looked at John Stones mm. and I saw leadership qualities aligned to real tactical intelligence and flexibility. What struck me, and, and this is maybe something that you could talk to, David, please, after the first goal, you know, City have their traditional huddle, don't you? And I noticed it was John Stones with his head bows barking out the orders to the rest of the group. Now, that tells me how far he's come. Teams need that sort of almost instinctive leadership, don't they, Dave? They do, and you say it's instinctive, but of course it's been learned. And I think the, the fact that the education he's been given at Manchester City... It gives him that confidence to be able to be that leader. I knew John's, I know John, but I knew him first as a 16-year-old kid at Barnsley, playing the first ever t- game that he that he was introduced in the first team in a pre-season friendly at Ilkeston. And he was just, he was a raw, skinny lad who would give everything, you know, and, and there's no way that you could see at that point that he was going to become the player he's become. But... Um, it, he was certainly a player that he, he, he didn't know where his best position was. He, play, he put it right back because that's where we needed a right back and and that's where he started. But obviously all his qualities have just flourished under Pep Guardiola. And like I said, as, as a leader, he's always been such a, like a, just a, you would call him a nice lad. That's what he was. But of course, through these time, this time playing for England and under Pep Guardiola, he, he's learned how to be a leader and like I said that all that confidence has come from the education he's been given because mm. we do lionize these coaches Johnny but you know when you see the effect that they have on players it just reinforces the respect you have for them so as another case in point Jack Grealish he's almost got a second season syndrome in the right way hasn't he he's just yeah he's just unrecognizable almost he is and fascinating listening to Dave there from a sort of player's point of view and and this is what we what the story is with Grealish as well. It, it's somebody that's been developed as a footballer, but also as a person by that coach. And Jack's gone from being the kind of slightly comical figure, you know, willingly comical, made himself this kind of bubbly, happy-go-lucky sort of character, to retaining that sense of fun and mischief, but becoming this really driven mature, focused team player because of the education he's had as a person, I think, within that dressing room, because it won't all be Pep, it will be being around those footballers too and in that culture, but but from the values that that, that Pep sort of puts in. And it, it makes me think, you know, that, that we we do only look at half the job sometimes when we analyse coaches. We, we we so often look at the, in the modern analysis anyway, at, at tactics and systems and, and, and the technical aspects but the best ones develop the person as well and and Jack Grealish now compared to Jack the lad let's say at Aston Villa is just they're two different people and also you're seeing a much better player than the, the one before yeah and we're also seeing Dave you know Harlan turning into Kevin De Bruyne to set up that second goal the other night um you know a couple of weeks ago we took an educated or a semi-educated guess about how many goals he'd end up with. Now, I think the consensus was 55. Very quickly, chaps, how many is he going to score? <laughs> well, do you know what? I, 
I don't think it's it's a case of or of of how many he's going to score or how many he should score. I think now it's all about the the quality of the goal and the the quality of the opposition. I think that the goal the other night it's it's it could have killed the tie off. It's the third goal in the tie, but it's worth two or three goals. You know, it's worth more than two goals against Leeds or or Southampton in the past, or any amount of hat tricks he's having in the in the Premier League, and that's what really at the end of the day, at the levels he's playing at, that's what you're going to be judged on now, those decisive goals, the goals against the very top opposition. So I think he would <clears throat> he would take scoring three or four more goals as long as they're the decisive ones win the Champions League. So you've bottled it then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he's going to come close to Dixie Dean, I must admit. It's ridiculous to say that, but I, I can't see him stopping. I think you'll get you'll get 60 in all competitions, but as, wasn't Dixie Dean 60 in the league? Yeah, I think he was, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, I think I, I think Dave makes a really good point about the, the importance of goals because I think Haaland doesn't just score volume, he scores the ones that the team needs and everyone loved the scissor kick against... Southampton, it was it was fabulous, but I really liked the first goal because it was a, it was one of those you know a half where City had played really well. It was a stalemate, and the balls floated high into the box. And there's one player who's just got the appetite and the power. Bang! It's in the net. You know he almost took charge of the situation there, and that was a key goal in the game, of course. So he scored. He's not he's not a, the flat track bully that scores third and fourth in a four 0 win. You know he's he, he's everything as a scorer. Two fixtures I'm I'm really looking forward to in the run-in. With the Premier League title in mind, David, Arsenal play at West Ham at the weekend. You know They're at the Etihad on April the 26th. Can you see City going through the run-in without dropping a point? Yeah, of course you can. I think the, the, the fact that their experience of being there, doing it before, you know, that, that's going to hold them in, in good stead, but the fact that it comes so early in this run in that Arsenal game and there's still plenty of football to be played afterwards, it can have a huge effect on the rest of the uh, rest of the running. And how that game goes, it's not about whether they win or lose, but it's, you know, if, if Arsenal do lose, it's how they lose. And if that's going to be damaging to the to the rest of their games, then they, I mean they've got similar sort of runnings. They haven't got both wouldn't say haven't got difficult runnings. City have got Arsenal and Chelsea and Chelsea Obviously, aren't the opposition that they, you know, they once were a couple of seasons ago. So you can see, yeah, I can see that that it's all going to hinge on that game, really, because the other than that, you can see both sides going through unbeaten. Otherwise, yeah. The other tie that I'm looking forward to is the semi-final of the Champions League, where you know, despite the well-meaning but frankly deluded optimism that. Chelsea can score three goals. You know, they you know, they should be called Chelsea nil at the moment, shouldn't they? <laughs> How do you think City will cope against Real Madrid, holds the Champions League, going for their fifteenth title? You know, all the legends behind them. Well, if if ever there's a team set up to beat City, it probably is Real Madrid psychologically, but also in terms of just the the way that Ancelotti has refined the counter-attack throughout his career, but also with that club and, and with Vinicius and, and a killer in Benzema, a warrior in, in Rudiger at the back, and then the, the brilliance of the midfield. I mean, they do have the tools to beat City. We saw them do it last year. And this will be the test of the Haaland theory, won't it? You know, the idea that, that what they actually needed to do against Real last year was put the game to bed and score goals rather than be able to hold out defensively. We'll see it in action. I would say, in reference to something you said earlier, Mike, this is the year for them, surely. You know, they surely will not have as good a chance. Well, actually they will, but but this is the year for them to break their dock. You know, they are better equipped than last year because of Haaland. So you'd think logically Real Madrid will be really difficult, but they were so close last year and, and, and they, got, they should be favourites in that to just do it. Mm. What if Chelsea, Dave? You know, I'm conscious this is a bit like asking you to do a Rubik's cube when you're blindfolded. But where on earth do they go now? You know, the recruitment has been catastrophic. The owner, Ted Bowley, is in danger of becoming a figure of fun. Let's be honest. And 
you know players are they're falling out of out of the sky almost there's so many of them there how do you sort that out well first and foremost i think there has to be a huge clear out at, at the end of the season there needs to build you know top possibility with eric ten hag there needs stability in in their squad and and sometimes it, it is a case of you know if you have too many options then you, there's, that also means there's too many errors to be made, there's too many wrong decisions to be made. And uh, you look at the side that they put up last night, and it, it looks, on paper, it looks a very good side. But there's so much, they've been unsettled so much about what's going on in the background. I still think it was a wrong decision to get rid of Graham Potter. I might be biased in, in doing that. But if they're going to go, if they're in for, for the long term, then they should have stuck with it. And, uh, and I think long term, given the chance, certainly given maybe it's another nine months, things would start to turn around and they would, this, things would start going in their favour. Now it's just, they've got a manager in who's only going to be there to the end of the season. You know, there was a discussion last night about whether Lampard would get the job full term if he if he went on and won the uh, the Champions League. Well, one, that's probably not going to happen now. And two, I still don't think he would have anyway because then he's still not looking long term because look what happened the last time that he was that he was in charge. You could see that it was, it was short-term fix and then the longer term, it just didn't happen. And I think players, now there's it's more unsettled than ever, really. Even though they've tried to put this stopgap in to, to try and settle the situation down, it just makes things worse for, for me because there's still a vacuum of authority there. They know that the manager's not going to be in the season. So, like I said, there's no authority and there's, there's no full, full commitment to anything that's being done. They can't see beyond the, the the next few games, so it's it's an awful situation for Chelsea to be honest with you. But I will say one thing though that you talk about Ted Bowley being made a figure of fun, and of course there's been lots of bad decisions being made. Lots of well, bad decisions. Well, someone should have had a word with them about saying, "Yeah, we're going to win three 0 in the Bernabeu, surely." Yeah, and perhaps you know in American sports that wouldn't be made as as big a as big a headline and. Again, he he's learning the same as everyone else, <laughs> and, and and probably I think if it was probably left down to him, solely down to him, I think Graham would probably still be in charge. I think it's, it's probably his Egg Barley who's the more ruthless of the of the two, who's who's forced the the second a little bit more. But I do think again, regardless of all this, the the mistakes that are being made now, I think that the money that they will still throw at it, they've thrown at it a lot now. They'll still throw a lot of money at it, and they'll throw a lot so much money in it that we'll have to get it right eventually yeah well it's throwing mud at the wall and see what sticks isn't it really <laughs> um and when you look at some of the individuals and i you know i know it's probably unfair to to highlight them but when you see someone like raheem sterling who seems to have regressed uh, cucarella who you know frankly has never convinced and even someone like yao felix he comes across to me and i don't know if you agree Johnny, it's almost like one of these TikTok footballers. Mm. You know, nice clips, but where's the end product? Yeah, I, I agree on, on Felix. I mean, the, the body of work doesn't, doesn't match the reputation or the, the, the things he can do in moments. He is a moments player, but the overall package doesn't, doesn't quite get there. And I think they're in danger of, or I think that more than in danger, I think the reality is they've left themselves in a position where by recruiting so many players at the same time without a clear plan for how to use them they're not actually going to find out if any of them are good signings or not if if, if you know what I mean because none of them have got a chance to get embedded into a structure that might suit them they're playing with different combinations all the time they're playing for a team that that you know isn't isn't aligned doesn't have confidence all the things that you need to be in place before I think you can judge a player properly aren't we there so someone like Carney Chukwemeka, fantastic talent. Are we going to get to see? Is he going to get to find out his potential, how good he is in the next couple of years? Noni Mardueki, David Fafana, and and that's before the Raheem Sterlings and 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 more experienced things. You're probably right about Cucurella. I don't think we need to see too many more games of his. But th- there's a whole load of them. I just don't think we can. We, they can judge. We can judge. You know whether they're good signings or not. That we might they might just have to wait to move on and resume their careers elsewhere. Mm. You, you you touched on it just a couple of seconds ago, David. This whole idea of almost like the locum manager, you know, Frank Lampard at Chelsea, Dean Smith at Leicester, two examples. Does that concept really work? 
For me, it, it doesn't. I go back to my experiences as a player. It's when, when that happens. There's there's that vacuum of authority, so there's, there's always something lacking. Now, and, I, and I think sometimes you leave it a little bit down to luck, where that's you know, if you have a good group of players and you have a settled group of players in a happy dressing room, then that 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 can work fine. Or if you've had a really authoritarian manager, where the, you know it's been a really oppressed dressing room, and then you know it's almost like the the lights being shone at the dressing room, then then it can work like that. But it, it will always it will always have a, a short term effect, and not always for the for the better. Uh, and like I said, having that for a manager to have that authority when he's making decisions, I think that it, it can lead to unrest in the dressing room simply because a manager can make a, a, a decision like we've talked about Eric Ten Hag and it works out well and everyone backs him. Decisions can be made in the short term, knowing that the, short, the manager's not going to be there for a long time and there'll be lots of um, dissent in the dressing room because they, they, one, they won't care what he thinks because he's not going to be there and two, they won't give him the, the respect that uh, somebody in that position, that position needs and deserves. Mm. It's hardly an ideal first game for Dean Smith at <laughs> Leicester at Manchester City, even if they rotate between um, Champions League's ties. We've spoken before, Johnny, about the contractual situations at Leicester. It's a club that you know well. What about that familiarity factor of, of you know Craig Shakespeare's obviously you know, known to them at the club? We've seen that in operation also at, at Palace with with Roy Hodgson. Yeah, look, I, I agree with David about the the the, the short term managers probably a bad idea. With Dean Smith and Leicester, you got to sort of look at the fact that box themselves into a position where you're asking someone to come in for eight games to take over a team who's second bottom in the league, whose fans are starting to turn against the the once beloved ownership who's you know half well not half the team but a fair chunk of the team is out of contract either this summer or, or or next summer i mean it's a it's a really really difficult situation and the first games at manchester city now given all those factors i think dean smith is as absolutely as well as they could have done you know finding someone willing to take on that challenge but also finding a guy who's just got the 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 personal kind of charisma tools decency to come in and and if not command the dressing room through authority at least command a certain amount through just being the person he is a decent person the kind of person you'd want to play for and then adding Craig Shakespeare on top of that who knows the club connects with the fans straight away very good coach by the way and and also knows some of the players it's about as good as Leicester could have done it's it's not ideal but one of the best bits of news the club's had for for a few weeks, anyway. Yeah, just a question for you, Johnny, because you know you know, you know the club so well. When it comes to short term manager, I also think that they should apply long term value. So, like, it's mm. if you if, if you bring the short uh, short term coach in, it has to be someone who's who's suitable and or something that the, the the club needs. And I talked about before about the the respect and the authority that managers have. Do you not think it would be somebody like somebody like Rafa Benitez coming in there? He's always got he'll have the respect of the players straight away. He has the obvious authority, but also for a team like Leicester, who've they've they're a mid-table side when you look at goals scored. Mm. They've scored the most goals in the bottom half of the, the table. And then surely that what needs what needs to change is, is tighten up at the back. So he he bring that as well. I get that, David, and I, I, you know, I love, I love Rafa, and I think one of the factors behind Dean is the thought that if they slip into the championship, maybe he could stay. But you could say that Rafa as well. You know, Rafa has won championships before. I think this the reason they didn't go for for him specifically because they did, they did look at it, is that he would challenge authority, he would challenge the ownership and director of football over budget and signings and power and, and they're not in a position at the moment where they want any challenge because the, the, the financial situation is is pretty delicate but so I don't think he was I don't think he was on the raid ultimately a, a choice for them because of those reasons but if you strip that those politics away much as I love Dean Smith I'd say Rafa would have been an even better bet yeah I've got one more question for you Jonathan if Daniel Everson had started the season instead of Danny Ward 
would they have conceded as many goals? <laughs> uh, well, well, no. I mean, uh, and and Danny Boards like played for a club close to my heart and yours, David, and 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 brilliant saver of penalties and and has given Leicester some great moments and shootouts, but. I never had the authority in the position, and and I don't understand Danny Evanson's career actually because he's he's been in the club a long time, and he's he's a he's a really good goalkeeper. I'm not quite sure why he's been number three and now you know number two for most of the season, but he's certainly he's certainly been decent since he came in. What what do you think? I, I well, I think probably the reason that he's been held back from Leicester is probably to do with the use of the ball with, with his feet. Yeah. Yeah, and it just probably didn't align with the, the way that Brendan wanted to play. So, but I think the the other side of it, the way that he defends his goal, it probably outweighs you know more than makes up for that. Hmm. Aston Villa at home to Newcastle, Johnny in the BT Sport lunchtime game on Saturday. Unai Emery, he's the poster boy, isn't he, for the right change at the right time? Yeah, yeah, it can it can work, can't it? And what a steal he looks actually by Aston Villa to get a manager of his quality and class at the time that they did. You know, I think Emery on the open market now would would have a huge range of choices. So it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of planning by them. What what he's done is is just it's clarity, isn't it? It's telling Ollie Watkins to, you know, that thing with the net in it, just stand in front of that and, and stay <laughs> stay there and shoot at it. Do you know what I mean? Um, might, it might have taken him about eight hours to tell him that, by the way. Because be a lot of... <laughs> it might have done, but the, but the message got through, didn't it? And, you know, he's just tightened about the back. He's made them more solid. Uh, some, some simple but good good defensive structure. Got McGinn in a good position, as I say, with Watkins. He's he's brought clarity to who should play Buendia or, or Coutinho. And the preposterous stick that he took because of his funny accent at Arsenal you know, ignoring this track record he's got. Well, it's great seeing him show why he has that track record now. Finally, a, a look at player welfare through the prism of Deli Alley. He obviously has some problems. His loan in Turkey didn't work out. If he needs support, David, what support is in place for a player like that? Well, well first and foremost, I think... in. <sighs> When you look at uh, Deli Elliott, I always thought of him as a player who's who football wasn't the most important thing for him, and I think that's a quite a healthy thing. You know, if it becomes too much uh, of your life, then you know when it's taken away from you, then it, it, that that's when bigger problems can arise. I think that um, for him personally, having the the structure around him, having the uh, friends and family around him. That that's the most important thing. And then on top of that, like you, you point to the to the PFA, then when the PFA offer help or the, the helps available for for players, it usually has to be that the player wants them. You know, they can't make an intervention about a player if they're worried about a player that's uh, you know whether they need help. The, the player has to need help. And and, and Delhi might be at a point in his life where, like I said, football isn't the most important thing in the world to him and that he doesn't see that what he's doing, the way the life is going, that is a problem to him. So rather than the PFA having to step in or to, to help out, which there, there are channels there, but like I said, it's more of a case that a player has to go to the, to the PFA to, to get whatever help they need. There is structures there available. But first and foremost, that's be friends and family who who need to make an intervention if that's what's needed. Delhi might just be thinking he's just living his life and that away from football he he, he needs something else or that he, you know he's more interested in other things. I think it's difficult to to approach a subject when you don't know exactly what what his motives are and and why he's yeah why he's in the position he is in now because there's a talent of footballer in there you know. In his time under Pochettino, he proved himself to be a, a, an excellent footballer. 63 goals in th- his first three seasons, you know, in Premier League football. It's a hell of a um, output, really. But but the, the, the but the drop off has been sort of cataclysmic, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, Johnny. One of the titles of your books is "Playing Darts with Delhi," which is a you know. 
very good book, by the way, people, um, is a, as a throwback to his days with the England team at World Cups. He's 27. You know, people are talking about this could be a career-ending situation that he finds himself in. This is the flip side of football, isn't it? It is, but the book you mentioned, Mike, was written about the 2018 World Cup, and at that point, Deli Alley was the future of English football, the poster boy, a player you were convinced was going to be a big part of what we've seen England going to do under Gareth Southgate, and and he's such a nice lad. And you know, the time spent around the camp and sort of getting to know him, but but dealing with him at that that camp actually showed. Just there's a lovely human being there because at, at that time I don't know if you remember he was also portrayed as being a bit spiky and and he had a bit of an edge to him and but he didn't see any of that almost the opposite of what a lovely kid he was and maybe that's maybe that something David said you know maybe that's part of where he is now that he's living his life and has lost that kind of edge in football terms or focus in football terms and he's 27 as you say Mike. It, it, you know, life comes at you, at you very fast for a footballer. I wonder whether it's already too late for him to get back to the top if that's indeed what he wants. I was at Old Trafford on Saturday when Sean Dyche was asked about Delhi, and his response was to give the question a very, very short shrift. Clearly, he didn't want to be drawn into anything, but it didn't. It didn't say to you that there's a manager there that's. And I'm not criticising Sean for this because he's got issues to you know relegation issues, but he didn't want to sort of go there with Delhi. So I don't think there's there's a club there willing to sort of roll out the red carpet and welcome him back. So the question is to rebuild his career that has to come from from him. I think it will have to come from him. And I, I, I just wonder I wonder whether he really wants to. I I, I don't know. It, it doesn't look to me like he does and I hope hope he proves that that wrong. Mm. Well by a twist of fate I happened to be there when Deli Ali was told that he'd been promoted to the first team squad at MK Dons. He was 16, his eyes shone and his excitement was tangible. Now, it seems the light has gone out in those eyes in recent years. Good people, I'm thinking of you know people like his former manager, Carl Robinson, are there for him, but only he really can save his career. He'll never again be that joyful, innocent kid, but we hope against hope that we can find himself or rediscover himself as a footballer. Now, I share Johnny and Dave's sadness about that situation, and I thank them for their insights. Thanks also to Eric Ten Hag. He's succeeding where so many have failed. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.